Looking for a break from the never-ending news cycle? Searching for fresh, new content that makes you stop and say, that's how they did that? Then look no further than Teamistry, the new original podcast from Atlassian. Hosted by filmmaker and documentarian Gabriella Cowperthwaite, Teamistry looks past the front-page headlines and into the untold stories of teams behind some of history's most groundbreaking moments. Download Teamistry for free at Atlassian.com slash Teamistry or wherever you listen to podcasts. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this week we're investigating the billion-pound criminal industry putting many species at risk of extinction, and that's the illegal wildlife trade. I'll be taking a trip to Heathrow Airport to look at some of the things people have tried to smuggle around the world, and Chris meets a man in the African bush with a very big gun. Before that, though, news of a breakthrough in understanding mysterious dark matter in the universe and why an unexpected rainstorm on Earth means finding life on Mars might be more likely than we first thought. I'm Chris Smith. I'm Georgia Mills, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Up first this week, a discovery that space scientists are calling revolutionary because it gives us new insights into a mysterious substance that we can't see or measure, but which nevertheless accounts for a quarter of the mass out there in space. This material is called dark matter. We think it's there because we can see the influence of its gravity, but it doesn't seem to interact with anything in any other way. Or does it? Because two scientific papers in the journal Nature have now put forward evidence that perhaps dark matter did interact with the hydrogen that was produced when the universe first formed. Harvard's Lincoln Greenhill has written a commentary summarising the findings. Before galaxies and stars were around, there was just a vast sea of gas left over from the Big Bang. That gas was mainly hydrogen. There was also some helium and there was nothing in it. No stars, no bright objects. The other thing that was around at that time was dark matter. Dark matter is out there because we can see the influence of its gravity on how stars move within galaxies and how galaxies move as they dance about in the cosmos. And we've been searching for some time for evidence that would enable us to answer the big question, what is dark matter? What are those particles that are causing gravity but don't seem to interact with radiation? Until now, it has seemed that they only interact with one another. And how have these researchers managed to get a a fresh insight into what dark matter might be? So it begins with the first team. They used a uh, very carefully constructed radio antenna, which can receive signals at the frequencies that we currently use for television and, and FM radio. And they observed the background, which is leftover emission from the Big Bang at radio frequencies. And then they saw a very slight deviation in that signal at frequencies that correspond to what hydrogen atoms would be emitting and absorbing. And that very small deviation tells us that the temperature of the hydrogen gas was actually lower than anyone had expected. And in fact, sufficiently low that it can't be explained. Just normal interactions of matter couldn't make the hydrogen gas that cold. It has to be losing energy to something else. So is it fair to summarize then and say the Big Bang happens, we know there's a a big conversion of energy into material matter and a big chunk of that's hydrogen. 
we think we understand what must have happened. The universe is inflating and growing, a bit like a balloon blowing up, and we know how much energy should be there. Therefore, we think we know how hot the hydrogen should be. But when this group look at how hot the hydrogen is, it's cooler than the model would predict. So some energy has gone missing, and now they're speculating as to where that heat energy may have gone. That's correct. And at this time, the universe was relatively simple. We had the hydrogen gas, we had dark matter, uh, both left over from the Big Bang, and we had radiation left over from the Big Bang. So there aren't many places that the energy of the hydrogen could go apart from leaking into the dark matter. So why is the hydrogen hotter than the dark matter then? If they're both around at the same time, why does the hydrogen lose energy to the dark matter? The great advantage that the hydrogen has is that it can interact with more than just itself. The dark matter, so far as we had believed up until this most recent discovery, only interacted with itself. The hydrogen, on the other hand, is able to uh, interact with both itself and with the radiation that surrounds it and, in fact, can interact with the very first stars as they were born approximately 180 million years after the Big Bang. And so the hydrogen can draw upon sources of energy which dark matter doesn't have access to in some sense. How do the teams think that the hydrogen gives this thermal energy away to the dark matter? So we have only the most rudimentary understanding of this at the moment. We think that it's a process that is like scattering, that is billiard balls banging off one another, transferring energy from one to the other. And what are the implications, if they turn out to be right, what are the implications of this discovery? Potentially, this is revolutionary because dark matter makes up most of the matter in the universe. It, it outweighs normal matter by at least five times. And we now have a completely new window on a type of physics that no one had seriously imagined would be the case up until now. And of course, dark matter is everywhere. It's uh, running through our bodies. It's running through our environment. It does not interact and we don't see it, but it's everywhere. And so it's a new universe in some sense. It's amazing, isn't it? Lincoln Greenhill there, who was summarising the two papers that set out that discovery by, in turn, Arizona State University's Judd Bowman and his colleagues and Tel Aviv University scientist Renan Bakana. Back here on Earth, high blood pressure is a strong predictor of heart disease and strokes. So finding a way to manage it effectively is a top priority for patients and doctors. Well, now a team think they've found a way to improve how we treat high blood pressure without adding a huge cost or time burden. They're using measurements people take themselves. Chris met up with study author Jonathan Mant to hear how. About a third of people in the UK already measure their own blood pressure. But then the problem is that GPs don't really do anything with those readings. They tend to uh, use the readings that they or their practice nurses take themselves. So the question that we wanted to ask was if GPs systematically made use of the readings taken by patients at home, would that improve the blood pressure control? Why should there be a difference between the measurements that I get at home versus if I came and sat in a GP surgery and got them to do it? Measurements taken at home, paradoxically, are more reliable. Uh, this is because many people, when they go to the GP surgery, are a bit anxious about what their blood pressure might be. So often their blood pressure is higher when they take it in the GP surgery. It's usually because they can't find a car parking place. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I suppose the other thing I should say about blood pressure measurement at home is that you can take blood pressure lots of times uh, because what we're aiming to treat when we're trying to lower blood pressure is actually what the true kind of underlying blood pressure is. And if you just take one or two random readings in a clinic, that's not a very accurate gauge of what the true underlying blood pressure is. But at home, you can take it several times a day, several days a week. And so therefore, you do get a better representation of what the underlying blood pressure was. So how did you do the trial? Uh, we recruited 140 general practices and within those practices, we recruited about 1,200 people who had high blood pressure. And then those 1,200 patients were randomly assigned to one of three groups. The first group was usual care, so that the GP was left to manage their blood pressure in the normal way. The second and third groups were both given blood pressure machines to measure their blood pressure at home, and they were trained how to use those machines. 
and we asked them to take their blood pressure morning and evening every day for a week, one week per month. Now, one group we asked to uh, send the blood pressure readings back by post to the practice. The other third group sent the blood pressure readings back by SMS messaging. Right, so all this data is aggregated. What do you do with all that information? Two things. The patients have a postcard system that warns them if their blood pressure is too high or too low. And so if they find their blood pressure is too high, they're encouraged by the postcard to uh, go and see their general practitioner. The practices were asked to review all the readings they received every month and make appointments for people where they had concern. And then we asked the general practitioners to titrate the blood pressure low medications according to those blood pressures. So the GPs are able to react to that information coming in and adjust the patient's treatment, but they haven't actually critically had to take up an appointment space and had to see the patient while all those measurements were actually being made. So this potentially sounds a lot more efficient then. It's a lot more efficient and it's part of it is giving the control to the patient rather than to the GP and the GP doesn't actually need to measure the blood pressure at all. When you then follow up and see what happens to the blood pressures of these different groups of people, how do they all compare? At six months there was significantly lower blood pressure in the group that was self-monitoring and using text messages to get the information back to their GP. At 12 months, there was significantly lower blood pressure in both the self-monitoring groups. The differences in blood pressure, were they clinically significant? As in, I could say, well, something statistically significant, the blood pressure is a very small amount lower, but actually that's not really going to make a big difference to my heart attack or stroke risk. Is it clinically significant here? Um, Yes, it it was. We found um, that the blood pressure in the self-monitoring groups was lower by four millimetres of mercury. Now, that may not sound much, but that equates into about a 20% reduction in the risk of stroke and about a 10% reduction in the risk of uh, heart attack. Promising work. So it sounds like it could make a real difference. That was Jonathan Mant at Cambridge University, and that work was published in the Lancet Medical Journal. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with George Mills. And still to come, how crickets are using amplifiers to boost the sounds they make, and we probe the trade that's costing animals and humans their lives. But first, it's time for this. What happens when the science and technology of space comes down to Earth? Welcome to Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists, the mini-series that explores spin-offs from space technology that are being used on Earth. I'm Dr Stuart Higgins. This episode, how an astrophysicist working for Tokyo University's Institute of Space and Astronautical Science developed a special system for folding solar panels that's now used to make easy-to-fold maps. Keeping spacecraft powered up during missions is a challenging task. The bigger and heavier something is, the more expensive it is to launch, meaning giant batteries are out of the question. Solar panels are a favourite for use in space because they offer a relatively good power-to-weight ratio, but they also require a large area to operate. To save space during the launch, solar panels are often folded away inside the spacecraft, slowly unfolding up in orbit. Getting the unfurling right can be one of the more nerve-wracking parts of the mission, because if the panel gets stuck, the spacecraft's batteries will soon run out of power, and it's mission over. In the 1970s and 80s, astrophysicist Koryo Miura was working on how to fold solar panels and other structures for space. He mathematically determined an optimal folding method that critically allowed the solar panel to be unfolded with a single pulling movement. This meant that not only did the folding offer the benefit of saving space, it also minimised the number of motors needed to unfold the solar panel. Miura also took care to minimise how the folds cause tensile stress in the material. If you fold a piece of paper in half and then half again, the outside fold has to bend around multiple thicknesses of paper, applying greater strain. In his calculations, he tried to minimise the risk of the fold tearing. As well as being useful for deploying solar panels in space, the Miura fold has also been used to make subway maps that can be easily unfolded, presumably by confused tourists struggling to find their way. And the usefulness of the Miura fold doesn't end there. Researchers at Cornell University are excited about how different kinds of murifold can be used to create metamaterials. A metamaterial is where a small repeating pattern gives a material new or unusual properties. So in the case of the murifold, the repeated parallelogram-style folds turn a floppy sheet of paper into something with greater structural strength. The researchers are interested in what would happen if they could apply the same folding patterns, but on a much smaller scale to materials such as graphene to see how their properties would change. 
As for space applications, research into origami-related structures is continuing, with an even more elaborate folding method being developed that allows solar panels to be deployed in a circle using the rotational force of the spacecraft alone. So that's how solving the problem of folding solar panels for spacecraft led to -to easy-to-unfold maps and has helped inspire research into new ways of working with materials. That was Down to Earth from the Naked Scientists. My name is Dr. Stuart Higgins, and you can find more episodes online at nakedscientist.com slash down to earth. Thank you, Stuart. And next time on Down to Earth, we'll be hearing how the space race has given us selfies. Not sure I'll be thanking it for that one, Chris. Now, parts of the UK have been battling blizzards and sub-zero temperatures in recent days, and the unpredictable weather has got many people down. But some unexpected inclement weather actually turned out to be a very big help for one group of scientists who are weighing up the probability of finding life on Mars. Georgia has the story. Life exists almost everywhere on our planet. But there are a few places so extreme it's thought nothing can survive. And one of these places is the Atacama Desert in South America, which has the dubious honour of being... The driest, warm desert on our planet. That is Dirk Charles McCoe, and his line of work takes him to the most extreme environments on Earth. That's very intriguing because there's no trees, there's no plants. So if you're there, it feels kind of very different. You know where you and I come from, we see all the time plants and animals, and so life is everywhere around. And there it is not. You just have rocks and mountains, and once in a while you feel the wind on your skin, and that's it. Dirk and his team had a big trip planned to go and get samples from one of the driest places on Earth. It goes decades without a single drop of rainfall. And then, just before they arrived... Yep, it rained. Yeah, and we thought, shoot, we we prepared (laughs) months for it for sampling, the driest spot on Earth, basically, and then it rains there before. First, we thought it was bad luck, but it turned out to be good luck. With that, we saw the activity of the microbes. And in the two later years when we sampled, it much went down. So the organisms, the microorganisms became dormant again. Previously, the small bits of life discovered in the Atacama were thought to have ridden in on the winds, only to end up dying there. But when the rains came, this dry desert came to life, suggesting that certain things can survive there after all. Mostly bacteria, but we found also uh, viruses, uh, fungi, and uh, archaea. So, um, so quite a bit, but most of it was bacteria, especially in the most driest area. You've found, you've gone along to one of the driest places on Earth where we previously didn't think things could survive there. What you found suggests they can. So what, what does this mean? What implications does this have? Well, it has direct implications also to Mars because uh, Mars had oceans on its surface early on, about 4 billion years ago, and got drier and drier with time. And so Mars has still its moisture events, though. You have sometimes fog, you have uh, near-surface groundwater, you even have an occasional nightly snowfall or microburst there. So there are ways uh, how you get moisture on Mars as well. And now the question is, Mars is still a tick harder can life still handle that? Of course, in the Atacama, they're just barely hanging in. So can they handle a notch more? We don't know. But looking at the creativity and innovation of evolution, I'm slightly optimistic that this is the case. So you think this, uh, there's more hope then that we might actually find something that's either dormant or living on Mars? Yeah, I'm pretty confident. You know, uh, once you had a biosphere on a planet, and I think Mars had one, it would be very difficult to wipe it all out. It's like infestations. You have a difficult time to get rid of it. Life just wants to hang on. As Jeff Goldblum says in Jurassic Park, life finds a way. It clearly did in the Atacama Desert, but will it have on Mars? That was Dirk Scholz mako from the Technical University of Berlin, and that discovery just came out in the journal PNAS. Well, talking of life doing exciting things, have a listen to this. Now, keep the volume of what you just heard in mind and compare it with this. (laughs) 
Now, hopefully you noticed that the second one was a lot louder than the first. But that wasn't us. The insect that made that sound did it itself by building an amplifier from a leaf. And Natasha Mahatre has discovered how. So these creatures are called tree crickets. They're about a centimetre in length. They're really beautiful. I mean, most of us see crickets from the pet store, which look kind of brown and a bit cockroach-like. Tree crickets are really pretty. They have translucent wings. They have long antennae. They're small green things. And there's tree cricket species more or less all over the world. The ones that we're working on come from India. All tree crickets do this really amazing thing, which is that they sing to attract mates. They put up their wings, which are resonant, rub them together, set them into vibration, and produce really beautiful tonal sounds. That's what you can hear most summer nights. These sounds are heard by the females who can use them to identify males of their own species from other males and find the males. These tree crickets also do this amazing other thing, which is that they make an aid that helps them be louder than they would be on their own. Really? What do they do? They make a thing called a baffle. A baffle is, for a tree cricket, very simply, a hole cut in a leaf that they sing from. So they place their wings directly against this hole and sing from inside it, and this makes them louder. Is that a bit like you see people walking around in the old days on Hollywood sets with a megaphone, which was basically a cone with the end chopped off, and they shout into it? Is is it sort of doing something similar? They're creating an amplifier from a leaf to make themselves louder? It's a bit similar, so I'll try and explain the physics as simply as I can. So if you can imagine the wings as a board that's vibrating back and forth, every time the board moves forward, it produces high pressure in front of it. And behind it, it produces low pressure. And this is essentially what sound is. It's changes in pressure. But what will happen is that the high pressure and the low pressure will meet at the edge of the board. When they meet with each other, they'll cancel each other out. And this is something we call acoustic short circuiting. Now, the smaller the board is, the more of the sound that's produced is short-circuited. If you can somehow prevent these two high pressure and the low pressure from meeting each other, then you can prevent acoustic short-circuiting. And that's essentially what's happening when a cricket puts itself in the hole in a leaf. What happens is that the front face of the wing is effectively acoustically separated from the back face of the wing, and they end up being louder. And how does the cricket find the leaf and the hole in the first place? Ah, there's a big secret in that. So one of the things that we did was to see whether there are different baffle designs. And it turned out, if you model this, you find that some baffles perform a lot better than others. And the baffle that performs the best is made with the largest leaf, with a hole that's exactly the size as the wings, and placed dead center in the leaf. Right, so next question then. Given that that's the optimal solution... What proportion of the crickets actually opt for that? It depends on the situation, but when we did an experiment in which we gave 19 crickets the choice between a small leaf, which wouldn't make such a good baffle, and a large leaf, which would make a great baffle, 15 crickets made a baffle, and every single one of them made a baffle in the large leaf. They made a baffle in the large leaf with the optimally sized hole, and they got pretty close to the center. So all of the crickets seem to know how to make an optimal baffle. Now, given that crickets sing at night, they're therefore able to work out the size of a leaf, discriminate between leaves that are bigger and smaller, and then having worked out the size of the leaf and made a choice, they're then working out where the middle is. How on earth are they doing that? Yeah, they are doing that. We have no idea. There may be different ways in which they're doing this. One is to walk along the edge of the leaf... The other is to use these really beautiful long antennae that they have to touch the edges of the leaf to see if the edges are further away on one leaf than another one and, you know, sort of using them to center themselves in the middle of the leaf. But to be honest, the answer is we don't know how they're doing it yet. How much louder is the baffled cricket compared with a non-baffled cricket? In other words, what sort of advantage, a sonic advantage, do they gain through doing this? A cricket that's in a optimal baffle will be four times as loud as a cricket that's on its own. This completely changes our view of insects, doesn't it? Because we we mostly think of insects as sort of dumb automatons. But here you've got very simple organisms. They're making a sequence of decisions 
informed by their own measurements in order to achieve an outcome. And that's really quite striking. Absolutely. It has been a long-held view that invertebrates are stereotyped. And vertebrates, mammals, birds, etc., are extremely clever. And we've been having to change this view. I mean, I think one of the first things that really jolted this was when they found that octopuses can make tools. They were making all sorts of tools. Now, if you think about it a little bit, an octopus is a mollusk. It's the same as a snail. So really, we can't hold on to this idea anymore that invertebrates are simpler animals. They're just different from us. And we're absolutely going to have to look very closely at how insects behave in order to be able to appreciate what's going on that's not immediately apparent on the surface. Absolutely incredible. Who would have thought that insects could be acoustic masterminds? That was Natasha Mahatre from the University of Toronto. And the study describing that discovery came out in the journal eLife. If you'd like to follow up on any of the stories or interviews from this week's programme, the audio, the transcript and the references to those papers are all going to be available on our website at nakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. On The Naked Scientist this week, it's worth as much as the illegal drugs trade. It's costing thousands of people their lives and even more their livelihoods. And for some species, it's the single biggest driver towards their extinction. It's the illegal wildlife trade. So we're meeting the scientists and some law enforcement officers who are going to be turning up the heat against criminal cartels to try and save some of our most charismatic species. And one example of this is the tiger. So I went along to meet some down at London Zoo. Just cats. Yeah. Just, just like my cat. <laughs> Slightly bigger. Yeah, just... My name is Paul Dearnellis. I work at ZSL, Zoological Society of London, on our Africa programme and also leading on illegal wildlife trade. Illegal wildlife trade, it's a sort of all-encompassing term, but it's looking at some of the issues around those species that are traded either in whole or in part, and it's associated with illegality, often associated with international organised crime networks, and it's rapidly been recognised over the last few years as being a, a really significant issue, not just for wildlife, although it's obviously why an organisation like ZSL is engaged in it, but also around criminality, governance, lawlessness, undermining uh, local people's livelihood options and so on. Um, And I think that a recent UN assessment estimated that annually illegal wildlife trade accounts for anything up to 10 to 20 billion US dollars per year, which puts it in the same league as things like narcotics, weapons, people trafficking and so on. We're standing outside the tiger enclosure. Can we go and have a look at the tigers? We can indeed. I think the tigers are nestling on their hot rocks, which, to be honest, I'm quite envious of today. (laughs) Yeah, there they are, stretched out, one arm in the air. Oh, yeah, they do not realise it's snowing outside, do they? No, I don't think think we're going to move them from there. (laughs) (laughs) So these overgrown tabby cats, I mean, they're absolutely beautiful. What would someone want an animal like this for in the context of the illegal wildlife trade? To be honest with tigers, it's almost any part of their body uh, associated with traditional Chinese medicine and other tonics and so on. So bones, skin, even blood and other body parts, which is a really major issue affecting them today. Oh, God, that's, um, yeah, that's tragedy, really. Like, they're... um they're just so great, all in one piece. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed. And look, we're, we're, I mean, it, it's hard to put a figure on exact numbers, but there's probably less than 4,000 tigers in the wild at present. Th- that's gone down from substantially more than that, sort of around about the turn of the 19th, 20th century. So it really is imperative that we take action against the trade that's affecting these species, otherwise we're going to lose them forever. So these guys have their hot rock they're resting on, and we, we don't have the luxury. We're outside in the cold, so should we go and warm up somewhere? Sounds good. You mentioned earlier this is a, a massive industry. This isn't someone just nicking eggs off a beach and eating them. This is like a huge thing. So who 
Who are the key players involved here on each step of the process? It's a very complex picture. It it does actually go all the way from people from rural communities who may be willingly or not implicated in IWT. They may be poaching something then selling it to middlemen who then may pass it on to people further up, a sort of criminal network. It depends really on the product. But if you're looking at, for example, something like uh, ivory, you will see middlemen sourcing them from a number of different locations before they then pass out via either airports or international ports and then moving around the world. It's, it's actually incredibly flexible and in making use of the sort of criminal networks that ship and trade all sorts of other products as well. Now with us is a little, uh, looks like an anteater, it's very furry and it's very sweet, I'm stroking it now. <laughs> Not a real animal, it's a fluffy cuddly one I should point out, but what is this and why, why am I cuddling this toy? <laughs> <laughs> I can certainly answer the first part of the question or try to. Um, so this is a pangolin. Species-wise, it looks to me like a giant pangolin from Africa. You can identify the cuddly toy. Um, so I'm being cautious and no one else can see it, so I'm probably <laughs> on safe ground. Apart from looking like a little dinosaur and generally being a pretty cool animal, it has the dubious distinction of being the most heavily trafficked wild mammal in the world at present. For some species, we talk about body parts representing two lions or 50 or 100 elephants. For pangolins, they're traded in, in tons. And primarily, that's for consumption in East and Southeast Asia, whether that's for food or medicinal products. How do you move something of that scale? So for pangolins, what we're seeing is where the scales are often stripped off, put into big bags, and then shipped almost like any other good. And we come back to this idea of illegal wildlife trade or wildlife crime as being another crime. And for the criminals involved, it's about making money from utilising a product. And unfortunately, these endangered species are, are the product. And whilst it remains relatively low risk, and relatively high benefit, then those sorts of criminal gangs are going to get involved. And it's our job and the job of the enforcement agents and others who are trying to protect these species to try and alter that balance so that it becomes a high-risk and lower-gain opportunity for criminals, and hopefully then they'll move on to, well, hopefully they're not engaged in any criminal activity, <laughs> but certainly move away from wildlife. Then they'll just stick to, you know, theft, yeah, just, plain just old narcotics, theft. that sort of thing, <laughs> things that don't bother That was Paul Dionellis at ZSL London Zoo. Now, as Paul made it clear, it's a big, complex network involved in this trade. So we're going to look at how people are trying to intervene at each step along the way, from protecting the animals themselves, to apprehending cartels, to stopping things at the border, and then preventing the demand itself. And so to start with, Chris, you actually met someone whose job it is to risk their life to prevent poaching. Yeah, that's right. On a recent trip I made to Africa, I was visiting Zambia, which is a country above South Africa in the bottom right of the continent. And I spent some time there walking in the South Luangwa National Park. Now, that's one of the richest and most pristine game reserves in the country. And the Zambian economy actually relies very heavily on tourists coming in to see their animals. And they have found that one very effective way to protect their game, which is also frequently of interest to poachers, of course, is to make it the law that a wildlife protection officer who's a specialised and critically armed member of the country's police force accompanies all of the safari groups and walkers. And that has the great virtue that it means there's a very visible armed police presence wherever the game is. My name is Andrew Sakala and I'm a Zambia wildlife police officer in the South Luanga National Park. So what does that actually mean you do? Uh, actually, we are divided into two categories. Right now, some are out in the field conducting anti-poaching patrols to stop poachers from hunting our game. And then some of us were conducting escort duties, doing the protection on the guests during the walking safaris. Yeah, because you're out with us every day, and you're the bloke with the seriously big gun. <laughs> yeah, actually, yes, we use ak 47 Right. So what's that loaded with? Can you show me? Yeah, I can. It's loaded with... A mix of rounds, hard ones, and full metal jackets. Part of your job is to escort people like me around. Yes. Um, and you said the other part of your job is doing the anti-poaching side yeah. of things. So what does that involve then? It involves anti-poaching patrols. When we are said to go and do anti-poaching patrols in the field, we carry everything. You need to be out in the field for 10 days. Presumably the poachers are not nice people. They are not, literally, because... They don't know the importance of our game because all they do is they mean to destroy. 
when you are confronting a poacher, he is pretty sure that if he is apprehended and brought to justice, he's going to be in jail for too long. So trying to rescue from that one, he's going to do anything, but not with a rifle, because normally nowadays they are using muzzle-loading guns, which when he fires once for him to load it, it takes sometimes good 20-30 minutes. So he knows with somebody handling an AK-47, he is vulnerable. So really it's your physical presence. You're a very visible presence in the park. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a strong deterrent to them. You don't actually have to fire on them very often. No. When we see the poachers, we stalk them. If we touch forward to them, they start running away. We'll try and fire to scare them so that they stop. And then we apprehend them, take them before justice. Andrew Sakala there. Now, when an animal is unfortunately poached, it needs to be moved by a complex criminal network. So can science come to the rescue and help apprehend these dangerous gangs? With us is someone whose work has been instrumental in bringing down some of the cartels who are involved in this trade. Sam Wasser is a zoologist at the University of Washington. He's also been dubbed the Sherlock Holmes of the illegal wildlife trade because he's developed techniques that enable him to track down where animals are being poached from. First, Sam, what's the magnitude of the problem that you're grappling with, you and your colleagues? It's quite serious. If you just look at the ivory trade, there's about 40,000 elephants being killed a year and only about 400,000 left in Africa. So it's causing quite a bit of damage to the ecosystem. And much of this ivory is being shipped in large shipments, over a half ton. And it's shipped in containers. And right now there's about 1 billion containers moving around the world each year. So you can imagine the problem is that you've got a huge profit margin. And all you have to do if you are a transnational criminal is get your ivory containerized and get it into transit. And you've pretty much got it made. So it's made an extremely difficult problem. And the people, as we heard from Andrew, who are actually responsible for this are not nice people. No, they're not. Uh, There have been over 3,000 rangers killed by poachers and some people who are also looking at it at a higher level, trying to get the big cartels. About six months ago, a very well-known investigator, Wayne Lauder, was murdered in Dar es Salaam, and that was really devastating, and there have been others. So it's quite serious. And the strategy that you're advocating and have helped to develop, what does it involve? What we're trying to do is develop ways to get the traffickers before the ivory goes into transit. Because once it's in the transit, it's so difficult to find. So we developed ways to identify the major poaching hotspots in Africa, as well as the major cartels and how many different shipments they're involved in. And the way we basically do that is in the mid-1990s, I, my lab was one of the labs that developed ways to get DNA from elephant dung. So we could get dung across the entire continent of Africa and map the genetics of elephants across Africa. We then developed ways to get DNA out of ivory. And so now when there's a large seizure, we are able to get the genotype from those samples and then match it to our DNA reference map. And we can tell with very high accuracy where the elephants are actually being poached. And one of the things that really amazed us is that we have analyzed about 50 large seizures over the years. And in the last decade, virtually 100% of these large seizures, which are over a half ton, which is 70% of all seizures made, are coming from just two places. Right. So you genetically fingerprint the dung. So you've got a genetic map of Africa. You genetically fingerprint any ivory you encounter. That tells you where in Africa it's come from. And that means you can then effectively focus some of your anti-poaching efforts in that area, but also it gives you more insight into how these gangs might be operating. Yeah, so we identified the major poaching hotspots in Africa, and Africa is a big place. You Mm. can fit five United States in there, for example. So being able to say the majority of the really big cartels or transnational criminals are operating in two places is very important. But the other thing that happened in the process was we had a a very interesting breakthrough. When we're sampling these seizures, there could be a thousand or two thousand tusks in there, and we don't want to sample all of them. So we develop ways to subsample them. First thing we do is try to find the pair of tusks from the same elephant. But we noticed that over half the tusks in these big seizures didn't have a pair. And then I started wondering, well, where's the other pair? And I started looking between seizures, and I found that very often when poachers are poaching, they're selling it to a middleman, moving it to the big cartels. And often the two tusks get separated, and they get shipped out in successive shipments. And we were able 
able to track those and to show that whenever you get two tusks going in separate seizures, they're always going through the same port close in time, and the distribution of ivory in those are always highly in overlap. It suggests the same guy is actually packing both seizures. And you get a whole linked chain of matching pairs of seizures that link you back to the same cartel. And in doing that, we've now been able to identify the three biggest ivory cartels in Africa. Have you actually achieved any success stories in terms of convictions and so on, making a dent in this trade off the back of that knowledge? Absolutely. Uh, The first conviction we got was in Togo in West Africa, a man named Emil Mbuki, who was believed to be one of the largest traffickers in West Africa. He was convicted. He got the highest sentence that Togo offers, which unfortunately was two years. And he's already out. So that was a a bittersweet story. Most recently, the the biggest trafficker that we helped bring down, of course, a lot of people were involved in this, was Faisal Muhammad Ali, who was convicted for 20 years in Mombasa. We connected him to 13 different large ivory seizures. And that was pretty remarkable. We have another person in custody now in Tebe, Uganda. He has been linked to three other major seizures and also to a incident where Uganda helicopters were flying over the Democratic Republic of Congo. And actually, the helicopters killed 22 elephants. And we have since linked the ivory from that incident to one of those seizures that that individual's in custody for. But he keeps postponing his trial somehow, or someone does. And the other thing that is really kind of uh, alarming is there have been a number of cases now where some seizures that we have identified that are incredibly connected to many other seizures, two of them in particular, one never went to court, the other one was found not guilty, which was just I, I can't even say how, how shocked I was that that happened. So, yeah. Have you ever been threatened? Do you worry? Uh, sometimes, but not really that much. I, I have been threatened, but, you know, I'm passionate about what I do, and I don't really think about it, to be honest. Sam, thank you very much. You can see why they call him the Sherlock Holmes of the illegal wildlife trade, can't you? Sam Wasser there from the University of Washington. Good luck as you go forward in your mission. Now, what Sam mentioned is that the problem is hugely linked with how easy it is to transport goods between our countries, be it by sea, land or air. So when you're trading goods between countries, this is under the control of an organisation known as CITES, because not all of it is illegal, but there are strict rules on what you can and can't move between countries. So how do you catch what's allowed and what isn't? To find out, I went to Heathrow Airport in London, where I visited Grant Miller from Border Force and head of the National CITES Enforcement Team. We took a look in the so-called Dead Shed, which is a room full of all the illegal products people have been apprehended with at Heathrow. And this may be upsetting to some of our listeners. Oh my goodness. You've got your timbers there, elephant products, skulls, taxidermy, your reptile skin, snakes, medicinals. So from your traditional Chinese medicine medicinals through to the new age health supplements that we now get. And then a growing trend for us is the retro coats. So all the fur coats, etc. that that used to come up. Is that a polar bear there and a tiger? It is a polar bear that came in from Norway about 18 months ago. And then we have a piece of Indian red sandalwood. Two tons of this was smuggled through Heathrow Airport, wrapped up... Two tons, sorry, through an airport. Through an airport in our freight facilities, wrapped in uh, carpets. That was the smuggle. Moving through to ivory, the whole elephant is protected, not just the tusks. So what we do pick up is everything from elephant hide. So that's the skin of an elephant that's been tanned and, and cured. And again, what they'll do with that is they'll make it into shoes. There's a briefcase made from one. The tail here, made into a bracelet. Okay, a piece of handicraft uh, bracelet. And then we have the ivory itself. Items that are being traded are statues. We have shaving brushes. Your works of art, little uh, ball there that, that you can't deny. It's a beautiful thing. It's just the product is no longer acceptable. But is that a, um, a monkey head as well? That is a monkey head. Again, this was from a fairly recent conviction. And what we see with primate parts is that these are byproducts of the, the illegal bushmeat trade. So the hands, oh, oh, the skulls, that's grim. 
So that's a necklace with a monkey skull on the end. It is indeed a crab-eating macaque monkey skull, we believe, are traded and they are sold on online auction houses as gothic art. Holiday souvenirs, still a problem. The UK population still hasn't got the message that it's not acceptable to go abroad and bring back a stuffed sea turtle. Um, Other products we've got, um, this is bear bile. Bear bile. Bear bile. So the bear is held in in horrendous conditions, a steel cage invariably. A tap is inserted into the gallbladder and the bile is drawn off. The bear can't really move about. They go blind. They 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 suffer from mental health issues. You know, it's tortuous. Um, Vietnam at the moment is doing some fantastic work in actually trying to combat its bear bile trade. Again, a lot of the states, provinces in Vietnam are incredibly proud now that they can say we are bear bile farm free. So a long way still to go. There's a lot more work to be done, but there is uh, progress. I mean, looking at this, what I'm quite blown away by it's quite a horrific stash, but. There's the things you always associate with the wildlife trade. There's the ivory horns and enormous bearskins. But then there's a lot of stuff here that I wouldn't look twice at. So I guess it just shows how easy it would be to be complicit in this kind of thing if you're not aware of what you might be buying and moving. You know, absolutely. A tiger skin you would hope most people would be aware of. There are 33,000 species listed on CITES which are requiring our protection. Largest percentage of those are plant-based the best advice for your listeners is if you're not sure ask the question before you buy it if you move it over an international border and you don't have the correct paperwork you are committing an offense now in the united kingdom on conviction that could lead to a sentence of up to seven years and an unlimited fine the largest sentence we've had historically is six and a half years so, you know, the potential for prosecution for yourself to find yourself in, in, in real difficulty is there. My team, we make about 1,200 wildlife seizures annually. Uh, within that, we will probably seize 1,000 endangered animals. When Border Force sees an animal, it becomes Crown property. So the Queen has no idea the animals that she actually owns. <laughs> but we have large amounts of those uh, rehomed in uh, zoos both in the UK, but globally as well. So how do Grant and his team catch the illegal stuff coming through? Apart from studying who is flying in from where and targeting flights from countries with species of interest, a big part of it is looking out for something that just doesn't seem quite right. What we have here stuffed here isn't a dwarf nail crocodile, one of the most endangered crocs in the world. Now, we had six of these that were smuggled in through Heathrow Airport in transit uh, to Korea. They came out of uh, Benin, and they declared them as Mississippi alligators, so the common ones you would see in Florida and Louisiana, etc. That made us immediately suspicious because the last time we looked in Benin in Africa, there wasn't a population of these. Uh, so we had these six and we went out with uh, our colleagues from the City of London uh, Corporation uh, and identified immediately that these were actually uh, Nile crocodiles. Within 24 hours, we had lost two of these crocodiles they died and oh they came in live came in live yeah yeah absolutely and what we found was that they had left the fishing hooks in the crocodiles so these were well taken crocs bit of chicken in the end of your rope throw your hook in took it and all they had done was cut the uh, rope off so again working with expert vets in the uk we were able to save the other four so that's a rhino horn it was smuggled in a plaster cast that was painted as a Spanish lady. Uh, if you look in the back there, the little uh, red and blue, that's part of the cast that this was encompassed in. Oh, so they hid it inside a they, model? They did, in a, in a model. It was in uh, freight, that's where we picked it up. And the first question our officers questioned was, why would you want to ship that plaster cast around the world? Because it's mm. like a child's statue, mm. badly painted, not very good. So we x-rayed it and then clearly... The rhino horn showed up within it. We broke it open and we found it. Now, as well as our targeting, we also have a couple of friends that help us. We have two wildlife detector dogs uh, within the UK who have the ability to go out on a daily basis and detect wildlife products. Dogs have been really successful. They can pick up on ivory, rhino horn, furs, feathers, live tortoises, reptiles. Uh, We're training them on corals at the moment. And they're deployed fairly effectively within the UK. 
on a daily basis. That was Grant Miller from Border Force at Heathrow Airport there. And if you want to hear more from Grant and how they apprehend things at the dead shed, there's a longer interview going out on our specials feed. That's nakedscientist.com slash specials. It's amazing stuff. Now, none of this would be happening if there wasn't already a huge demand for these products. So how can we try and stop that? Well, with us to speculate is Sabri Zane. He's the director of policy at the wildlife trade monitoring organisation called Traffic. So why does this demand exist, Sabri, in the first place? Demand for ivory and rhino horn and other products, I mean, they've existed for years for a variety of uses, whether it's traditional use or ornamental. The, the challenge now, I think, is far more complex issue right now. Markets are changing. A lot of these countries now have been booming economies. With rhino horn, for example, it's not just traditional medicine now. It's also used as hangover cure or it's used for corporate gifting. So there are a lot of psychological reasons behind the demand. And you know, our approach to reducing this demand has to be a lot more sophisticated What do you do to try and change the behaviour of the men, women and children on the street? This goes beyond awareness raising through posters and TV spots because, as I said before, you're looking not just at traditional use, you're you're looking at people's lifestyles, people's attitudes and motivations. So to address that problem, we really need to understand the consumer down to, you know, the psychological traits such as what are the motivations, beliefs, attitudes of this consumer towards this product and what can we do to change that behaviour. The person may be buying an ivory tusk as a corporate gift. So we've been working with uh, Chinese auction houses, for example, who are offering animal-themed figures in amber, in jade, which will make a splendid corporate gift. So you don't need to kill an, an elephant to get what the status that you seek. All right. So once you understand why those products are being used, it becomes much easier to then try and change behaviour. And where does this message need to come from? We've done a lot of studies uh, which shows that the last person this message should come from is a conservation NGO such as mine. Because a lot of these consumers will say, oh, you're a conservation NGO. Of course you'll say that. I'm not going to believe you. So we really have to make sure that we get the right messengers. Celebrities work with a wide audience. But what we've found is that, for example, a lot of the corporate gifting, a lot of the career advancement motivations of these people, we need to use business leaders who these people look on as models saying, Nope, this kind of behaviour is not acceptable. And they they will model themselves to that. What's the level of commitment at the top level, government level, to actually do this kind of thing? Are countries motivated to help in this mission or actually don't they care? I think people now recognise that, you know, if you don't address the demand that is driving this trade, wildlife traders will find whatever way they can to circumvent the law. And I think there's a growing recognition of that. The UN General Assembly uh, resolution on wildlife trafficking that was adopted in 2015 highlighted demand reduction as an important issue. And CITES uh, had its first ever resolution on demand reduction as well. Uh, There's a major conference being held in London in October this year. Heads of state are going to be there. This high-level commitment is very important to making sure that action on the ground happens. Do these organisations actually have teeth? Can they do something? CITES certainly has teeth. Not only is it a legally binding treaty, but countries that do not comply with CITES provisions face trade sanctions uh, in CITES listed species. So, for example, last year, Thailand was under threat of a CITES sanction if they did not address their illegal ivory problems. And a CITES trade sanction for Thailand would result in billions in losses, for example, their orchid trade. So, you know, CITES does have teeth, but I think CITES also can provide the support, the expertise, the knowledge to help these countries address these problems. And has all this been successful? Are you seeing things the direction of travel, if you like, being in the right direction? One of the most significant conservation successes of the last year was China imposing a ban on its commercial ivory trade. That is going to have a huge impact. If three years ago you told me that you know China was going to ban its ivory trade, I would have said, oh, whatever you're smoking, I want some. <laughs> so you know that's not the end of the story. It's going to have a huge impact, but it can also 
move the market elsewhere. So countries really need to follow suit so as not to undermine the successes that we found in China. And just bringing you back in, Sam Wasser, you've been listening to that. Does this give you cause to be enthused that you think things are going in the right direction? I think we're still in a pretty scary place myself. I think that a lot of countries are not doing all that they can in the situation. I think that sometimes things are not what they seem. And I'll I'll just give you an example with China. Um, So it's wonderful that China has closed down their markets. But when you look at all of the ivory that is being seized each year in In my opinion, there's far more than what's ending up in markets. And what I think is actually happening is some very wealthy people are buying these large whole tusks and they're actually stockpiling those and waiting for conditions to open up again, perhaps if elephants go extinct, and then they will make a fortune. So when that kind of thing happens... All of these fixes are complicated, and and that's not to say that we don't need everything. We clearly need demand reduction. Demand reduction is the way that we keep those individuals that are stockpiling from being able to profit from it. But until that happens, it's very, very complicated. Going forward, I mean, there's this conference coming up. What change would you like to see implemented? Again, I'm a big proponent of demand reduction. The one problem I have with it is I think it's too slow. Because we are killing so many elephants. If we're killing 40,000 a year and there's 400,000 left, we have an urgency. And when we take a large seizure and we genotype it and get this information from it, it's so valuable what it tells us about how this trade is operating, who's connected. And one of the biggest problems is that we get these seizures very late. We get them one, sometimes two years late. And what we need to do is we need to make these countries understand how important to give us access to that information as quickly as we can so it has the maximal law enforcement action tied to it. Sabri, would you agree? Um, What would you like to see in October? Absolutely agree with everything that Sam said. We've seen incremental progress, incremental change, but we really haven't seen this push towards the systemic problems that are causing illegal wildlife trade corruption, poverty, ensuring that there's a strong local community engagement and buy-in into anti-poaching activities. I think what the conference would benefit greatly from looking at those broader themes, looking at not just seizing ivory, but looking at financial crime, following the money to where the kingpins are. There's still not enough of that being done. And engaging the private sector, the transport companies, e-commerce companies, uh, and especially online technology companies, because as these physical markets are being shut down around the world, that's where all the wildlife traders are going to. They're going online, they're going to social media, and I'm not sure we're ready to tackle that, and we really have to be prepared. Thank you, Sabri. So it is a really complicated problem we're dealing with here. And like Sam said, we're running out of time, but it's really excellent to hear about these success stories. So hopefully there'll be a lot more to come. Thank you, everyone who was on the programme. That's Sabri Zane, Grant Miller, Sam Wasser, Andrew Sakala, and Paul Dionellis. Well, now we've just got time to squeeze in our question of the week. And Katie Haler's been delving into this daredevil dilemma from Matt. If I fell out of a building, I would die. But if like a squirrel or a cat fell out of it, I think it would be fine. So how big does something have to be before fall damage will kill it? We roped in physicist Stuart Higgins to untangle the fearful science of falling. So there's no clear answer or size threshold of an animal before a fall will kill it. There are so many different physical and biological factors that can affect what happens during a fall that it's no one particular number or parameter that gives us the answer. However, physics can tell us more generally about why smaller animals such as cats are more likely to survive a high fall than, say, a human. And it's all to do with momentum. Momentum is your mass times your velocity, how fast you're going in a particular direction. The bigger your mass, the bigger your momentum at a given speed. Back to Stuart and the hypothetical animal that's just fallen out of a building. When you stop, there's a change in momentum, and that means you're going to experience a force. And the size of that force depends on how quickly you stop. So if you can increase how long it takes you to slow down, the force is less. And that's how seat belts and airbags and the crash mats used by stunt performers work. So cats and squirrels have smaller masses, 
So even if they're falling at a similar speed, they won't experience as large a force as a human would. And cats are also particularly smart because they can twist their bodies midair to allow them to rotate and land on their feet. And they can then use their legs, a bit like shock absorbers, to again increase the amount of time it takes them to slow down and reduce the amount of force on their bodies. As well as cats, Matt's question mentions squirrels. But take a flying squirrel, for instance. Its blanket-like body shape, when all stretched out, gives it an edge when it comes to surviving a fall. After all, they're able to glide through the air as their shape results in increased drag or air resistance. So where does air resistance come into our question? The bigger the animal, the higher its mass, and also the larger its surface area. It's surface area that affects air resistance, like with our flying squirrel. But as you get bigger and bigger, the mass increases at a much higher rate than the surface area. So it's the ratio of surface area to mass that means that smaller animals have lower terminal velocity, the fastest speed that they can possibly fall at, than larger ones. So a flat, light animal would fall slower than a narrow, heavy animal. So how fast an animal will fall could be affected by its surface area, but how much of an impact that has depends on its mass. Whilst it's difficult to say how big an animal would have to be before a fall would kill it, mass and body shape can influence how you'll fare in a fall. Of course, animals that spend their life jumping or gliding around might just be better at falling safely than most. And if you've got wings, well, that's just cheating. Thanks, Stuart. Next time, we'll be battling the elements with this cold conundrum from Mike. When I cycle my bike in cold weather, my nose runs. It doesn't happen in warm weather. So why is this, and is there anything I can do to help with it? What do you think? You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, you can find us on Facebook, and you can tweet at Naked Scientists, or you can join in the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientist.com slash forum. And do, of course, join us at the same time next week when we're going to be looking at the world of computing and even building one from the bottom up. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the STFC, the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. From all of us here at The Naked Scientist, see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.